1: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our colleague Noel is on an air venture. Ha, <laughs> get it, but he will be returning shortly.
2: They called me Ben. We're joined with our super producer, Paul Jetlag Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh... You know, it's, it's no secret, Matt, that you and I both are longtime fans of conspiratorial pop culture. We love a secret society. We love an overarching intergenerational conspiracy. And I, 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 uh, I remember when the film adaptation of Watchmen came out. And I don't know about you, but that totally rocked me. I loved it.
1: Yeah, dude seeing that dude's giant blue, uh, I mean, uh, 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 yeah, that was a great movie.
2: <laughs> was it giant? It looked kind of ab-
1: average. Well, think about, it's really scale, if you think about scale. So, like, for him, oh, maybe right. it wasn't that big, but, like, for everybody else. When he became a giant,
2: yeah. We're spoiling the most important part of the entire story. Yeah, um, so there's this, there's this question, in one of the non- um, radioactive penis related story <laughs> arcs of Watchmen. It's very yeah. much a B plot of Watchmen. Uh, there's this question about who watches the Watchmen, who holds those uh, in power to account. Like who like the people who are supposed to create and enforce the rules, who makes sure those people also practice what they preach? There's
1: a great uh, great new version of that in The Boys, I think. That's, that yes. entire series goes Ooh. over that.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, some people have uh, their issues with the edge lordy aspects of the of the original comic, but it is a great read. If you enjoyed Watchmen, it does bring up some of the same questions. That's an excellent comparison. And the reason so much fiction talks about this is because it is a real life question that has bugged pretty much every single modern society at some point, right? Does it do, should the king also follow the laws the king makes, right? Is it okay for the queen to murder someone, even though murder is illegal? And
1: especially the people who carry out the, you know, the law, right? The ones the ones who get to stop you and say, hey, you're going to jail. What happens when they do something a little off?
2: Right, right. Is it, le- when is it? legal for a member of law enforcement to commit homicide, right? Or to speed, you know, there's all these if thens. And in an earlier episode, something surprising happened to us on the way to recording some unrelated research led us to a strange tale of conspiracy and investigation that goes right to the door of Congress. It got real ugly and it's still, I would argue, continuing today. The aftermath of a grand undercover operation known as ABSCAM. Which is not, despite what the name might lead you to think, it is not a, uh, a product for abs that you would see advertised on Instagram or something. <laughs> yeah, a scam for your ab workouts. A scam for your abs or a camera just for your abs. Uh, anyway, here are the facts. Ab scam is an extreme version of a sting operation, right, at heart?
1: Oh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's a sting operation and or entrapment operation, depending on how you feel about it, right? <laughs> depending on how you feel, Either the courts went one way for sure. Uh,
2: <laughs> but that's Depending on is. whether or not you're in Congress. There you go. That's going to influence whether or not you think it's entrapment. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, it's
1: It's something that has been going on for a long time. It's a way to to catch a criminal in the act, right? A sting. It's a sting operation, right? So you set up all of the requirements for a crime to go down, usually a transactional crime of some sort where money can be exchanged or a good can be exchanged for something illegal, right? Um, And it's weird because on one side of that transaction, there are the police or the FBI or some other law enforcement official, and then there's someone who is being stung on the other
2: side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The term sting became famous in American culture in 1973 because of a movie called The Sting uh, with Robert Redford and Paul Newman, I think. But the, uh, the film itself is about a grift. It's not about a police operation. Still, people like the phrase sting operation, and it works. We see it all the time in fiction. Uh, countless law and order episodes have someone going undercover you know usually when one of the actors gets a writing or producer credit and wants to show more of their range so they write themselves into the episode a bit more uh but even though you can't trust depictions in fiction we can say that a lot of these programs get the rough aspects of a sting operation right they have you know Generally, they have four major components
1: yeah uh, that's going to be a targeted group or maybe even one individual human being that are the people that are going to be, as i said on the, on the wrong side of whatever transaction is occurring the They require an opportunity for a crime to be committed, or at least some kind of uh, exploitation by the police on an ongoing criminal. Action Right. So something criminal is going down. The police using usually, which is the third thing, an undercover agent of some sort getting into that operation exploits the whole thing. Um, And it's really important that you get evidence of whatever goes down. So hidden microphones, you know, wearing a wire is really important or setting up a camera to capture the events, something like that.
2: I would say that's a component of this. 100%. 100%. A second component is the demographic of, uh, of victim or target. You want someone who is likely going to commit some sort of crime. You're not, for instance, if there's an undercover thing busting, um, busting people buying drugs or busting people uh, in the sex trade, then you would not be you would not send an undercover officer into a, a, like your local grocery store in the cereal aisle going, who wants fentanyl or heroin or whatever, or, you know, who wants to do, uh, who wants to do some illicit acts, you know, yeah. over Go
1: to a library and just ask everybody if they want to party.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And still, it took me years to understand what that meant when people said, <laughs> do you party? Uh, so then the third thing you want is, like you said the undercover or a surrogate some there's some form of deception inherent to all sting operations which makes them inherently conspiratorial and typically
1: oh, oh often uh somebody gets turned who's already in an ongoing criminal operation and then that person becomes the surrogate as you're talking about
2: yeah you kind of string them along by hook or by crook and that goes into the kind of carrot and stick stuff we talk about with spies getting turned, right? You could have somebody working in exchange for a reduced or sentence or dismissed charges. Uh, you could also have some kind of blackmail or leverage on them, right? Or you could just be straight up paying them or all of the above. They'll find a way to get you if they need you. And uh, the, the fourth aspect is the most cinematic, right? The spectacle of it. It climaxes when it ends in arrest. Abracadabra b, abracadabra, right? And then all of a sudden, people are getting locked up because it turns out that Snakebite and the worm were officers Grady and O'Malley the whole time.
1: Man. <laughs> the worm. The, in this case, the sheik didn't even speak <laughs> the language.
2: No, he's <laughs> very much like Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards. But... Examples of this are common. They go across a range of crimes and they're also not perfect to their credit. The U.S. Department of Justice is pretty upfront about this. They say, look, these operations can be expensive. They can be really demanding and physically dangerous for personnel. And they don't they they're good at fixing case by case stuff, but they're not going to fix systemic incidents of crime you know if you do a sting operation on a known drug corner then what's going to happen is that because that location is known to customers other people are going to come in and fill the role
1: yep yeah or everybody's going to move to a different corner uh, you know and just avoid that area completely and then you got to set up shop over there another aspect of sting operations is that they can last for a long time some for months, some for years and
2: years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's the problem of ethics, the the line between a legit sting operation and entrapment, which is forcing someone to commit a crime and then punishing them for doing so. That line gets pretty blurry, uh, still all told. Sting operations have clear benefits. They can deliver massive results way, way beyond just busting people for selling dime bags or loose cigarettes. Shout yes. out to HSBC. <laughs> right. Yes. Shout out. Shout out to HSBC, which was once called a conspiracy theory. So I don't know, Matt. Let's talk about some of the um, big examples of U.S. stings. We, get, we just need to pull a couple here. Uh, They can go international. The FBI in 2012 had Operation Card Shop, which was uh, a multi-million dollar online financial fraud case. They arrested 24 different people across 14 countries, across four continents. They called it the largest coordinated international police action in history, at least targeting cybercrime. And when you hear about the way these things work, it sounds it sounds like the people who got pinched were kind of doofy about it right like it sounds it sounds as though they didn't think through things or they were way too trusting but we have to remember there's a lot of social engineering right there's a there's a lot of just like scientology there's a lot of uh, nuance and a lot of style that goes into getting people to accept these false versions of reality like the cyberstein thing You would go to this website and you could buy or sell stolen credit card info, driver's license numbers, bank information, all the stuff you would need to create a fake identity, essentially, except for like printing the thing out. Right. And then you would also have a forum, a little campfire where you could discuss general hacking techniques.
1: It is crazy that they would think you could just go to a website and carry out this kind of illegal activity. <laughs> uh, right. I wonder what kind of login there was for this website. It's just a regular old username and password, that's it. Oh, now I'm buying credit card numbers and stealing identities and using, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars uh by charging all these credit cards.
2: That's weird. Well, a big thing about this we have to realize too is that this website became vetted by first a few members and then through word of mouth, they vouched for it to people that they knew. That's how, that's what I mean with the social engineering. It operates on, on trust factors, right? So I, I know, you know, me and hacks 69 elite have been friends since back in the bulletin board days. And so, it. so I, I know this, I might not know their real name, but I trust them. When it comes to recommending a good place to steal credit cards, <laughs> <laughs>
4: honor fees. Re-
1: Reebok Reborn really gives this site a ten out of ten for credit card hacks. Or yeah. that's weird.
2: And they're a tough, uh, you know, they're a tough cookie. They don't just hand out those tens uh, the way they would hand out credit cards. So another operation. This one's even weirder. In 1998, NASA the U S postal service and customs got together and they did a sting operation. This isn't always just like the FBI or your local police department. They wanted to get a stolen moon rock back. It had been stolen and and hidden in a vault in Miami. So in operation lunar eclipse, they successfully nabbed the bad guys and brought the moon rock back. Wow. That's kind of a cool story. Yeah. Yeah that's that a cool story. I want
1: to know more about it. That sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> we should look into that further, Ben. I like that a lot. well there there's so many examples of this kind of thing, and especially this kind of thing that um that skirt right up against that entrapment possibility or the entrapment angle,, uh, because I remember when we would talk about the FBI going after people in Muslim communities, right? Where they would try and set up a sting operation by providing weapons or explosives to people that, that the, the FBI was basically grooming to, to take out terrorist action.
2: Um, it's a bit strange. Is the FBI a manufacturing terrorist, I think, mm-hmm. is the name of our episode on that. And one thing that still sticks out to me about that is uh, this is a high mark of character for the folks in those communities Right, the folks running the mosque would hear about this stuff and they called the FBI and they were like,
0: there's some crazy people,
2: they're trying to get our our, uh, community members to become terrorists, you have to do something, and then the FBI would find out that it was itself yeah Yeah, that it was the uh, terrorist groomer. So, yeah, there's a lot of controversy, and it's very much not a perfect system. What happens when law enforcement forces the commission of a crime? Uh, How do we square ethically with the fact that police and authorities often engage in crime during one of these operations? They're buying drugs. They may end up doing drugs in front of the people they're trying to nab just to show they like to party, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, in deep undercover is a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying place to be as an individual. Right. And when you you have to fit in with people who may not feel weird about committing murder, you never know what you have to get into in order to
2: retain your cover. So it's it's a scary situation. Yeah. Even when even when it's just kind of cynically milked for entertainment you can see the tremendous potential for psychological damage and Mm -hmm. for physical danger that uh is posed to these operatives i'm thinking or having to
1: commit a real serious crime because you have to or else you're gonna die
2: right or having to explain in a believable way why you're not the right fit for that like uh one recent example i saw a uh, off of law and order called law and order organized crime and a character from another show is a deep cover operative for a big arc in the, in the story. And this isn't spoiling stuff. You learn it very quickly in the show. He, uh, he takes on the persona of an arsonist, uh, named Eddie ashes. That's his street name. And so I'm wondering if it's like Witsec. I'm one, I guess the, the, uh, I guess if you're generating that kind of cover, you do need to choose your own name. But how ridiculous can you get with street names before someone says, I don't know if you're really a murderer. I don't know if Noodles is really a hitman.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Ashes was probably a prolific arsonist, I want to say.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Nailed it. So this this is an issue, too. The entrapment thing comes up a lot, and it's been used uh, as an attempted defense in U.S. courts. But I don't think many folks understand that entrapment laws as applied to the public and as written on paper, they don't really apply the same way to undercover operatives. Entrapment is a defense only when suspects are being pressured into uh, be committing or being implicated with a crime they would not have ordinarily have committed. And the legal definition of pressure varies depending on the judge depending on the jurisdiction et cetera, et cetera. it's like you're trying to prove intent right and you're you're trying to prove you're almost trying to like multiverse it or quantum leap it and say well it's not entrapment because you know friggin look at this guy this guy was definitely come on he was gonna do something your honor it was he was gonna do something
1: But as a law enforcement agent, if your team is the one that initially says, well, hey, what if we took some of your campaign funds and spread them out over here, then that would probably be entrapment or viewed as entrapment, depending on which state you're in, obviously. But if it's like. You know, we've got all this money. What are we going to do with it? And then the target says, well, you know, I could invest it over here and then get you a return or hide it in this shell corporation.
2: That's when it's not entrapment. There's a kind of a long line to be a U.S. citizen. You heard of private immigration bills, right? (laughs) Uh, So that's this is this leads us to the heart of another controversy, one that does not get talked up about often enough what happens when the United States tries a sting not just on members of the public not just on street level criminals but on the most powerful people in the country this is the story of Ab Scam so we're going to pause for a word from our sponsors make sure Congress doesn't catch on until we're done recording and we'll be back
4: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
2: Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, you can go to the FBI directly to learn about scam. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but they mm, the stuff that's written on the official FBI website a differs little a little patty. bit. It's a little backpack. Yeah, and some of the stuff differs. I and I I wanted to ask you about some of it, Ben, because let's let's say let's at least start with the FBI and see where we go from there.
2: Yeah, they've got a quote where you, you can see this on their website. They say it all started in July of nineteen seventy-eight. Maybe we get a little nostalgia music there, Paul. Perfect. When we set out to catch New York City underworld figures dealing in stolen art, we set up a bogus company in Long Island, Abdul Enterprises, thus the name, Ab-Scam, Abdul-Scam, said to be owned by a wealthy Arab sheik who wished to invest oil money in valuable artworks. Then we recruited an informer who connected us with crooks willing to sell us stolen treasures.
1: Huh. So right off the bat there, I mean, that is, that is essentially what Abscam was, how it started, right? I have seen in multiple places that Abdul Scam is not what it originally stand f- stood for.
2: That's a 100% correct. Okay.
1: All right. So my understanding is that it was originally, and forgive me here, but this was just the way it was put out there. It was called Abscam because it stood for Arab Scam.
2: Yes, it was originally called Arab Scam, and we'll get to the name change, too, okay, okay. where they sort of changed their story about it, and uh, the FBI is not near as quick uh, to report that name change. You know what I mean? The, the past, what, what is the old saying inside, I think it's the DOD, we don't lie, the truth changes, <laughs> Uh, which is a chilling thing to hear, right? <laughs> but uh, it's, that kind of double-think is more common maybe than people believe. Let's learn about the informant in question. They just call him an informant. They don't give this guy his due. Melvin Weinberg is just larger than life, man. He uh, was a well-established con artist who got caught. He was jammed up. Uh, he later said he kind of reformed. Uh, he was hired with the FBI by... the FBI on the understanding that if he played ball and did well, uh, he could get a probation deal and avoid some time in prison. And then also he would be able to get charges dropped against his estranged wife who left him for Wayne Newton. It's a long story.
1: Yeah. It feels
2: like a a Hollywood story, right? (laughs) It feels like
1: a script. Oh, wait, that's because (laughs) it was. Uh, American the, Hustle. Yeah, there you go. You can check out American Hustle with all the names changed and all the, you know, the story's a little different, but you can learn about a little about the character of Melvin Weinberg. Uh you can also, by the way, watch a 60 minutes interview with Melvin. Yes. Which yeah. is Dude, the guy is great on camera.
2: <laughs> He's about that life. He is very blunt. He's very transparent. Uh he, is, yeah, he has always maintained that he felt no strong ideological motivation. He was in it for the money. Uh, <laughs> Dude. And so to, keep, to keep his um, estranged romantic partner out of the pen. The operation begins low priority, kind of white collar sting. They have a budget that's $32,000. This is the yep. 70s. And that's enough to prime the pump for a few months. And if we're being candid, that means it's the kind of thing where they catch who they can catch with the money. And if they catch some people, it'll be considered a success.
0: Yeah.
1: And remember, at this point, with that $32,000, this is strictly focused
2: on stolen art. Mm-hmm. Which even the FBI at that time knew was a great way to launder money. So mm. uh <laughs> Cutting past the uh, racially charged aspects of Ab Scam, which didn't age well, the FBI quickly realized they were onto something bigger than they thought. Within just a few months, they had recovered two paintings that together were worth $1 million. And Weinberg got a little bit of a vigorous, too. He dipped his beak because the company that insured those paintings paid him ten grand. And this is where he and he talks about this in these interviews. I think in the sixty Minutes one, he says, "I realized I can make a living, you know, doing grifts for the government, basically. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm working for the FBI. Like, shoot, this is the best job I've had ever. <laughs> I mean, it it made sense. Uh, hey, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I'm not going to jail because the people who run the jails are the, are, are also my bosses. You know, yeah." I,
1: but here's the deal. Weinberg is really good at this. I mean, he he's just a a con man, I guess, a scammer in him, himself. So he actually convinces the FBI to give him more money to do more stuff. He's like, "I got other ideas, boys. <laughs> Let's try this out."
2: Yeah, and he convinced them. They they wanted to hear more about his ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he convinced them. Well, he he instructed them. Like, all right. You like some of these ideas, put a million dollars into this bank account. I'm going to turn that million dollars into convictions, boys.
2: That's basically mm-hmm. what he said. Mm-hmm. And and he did raise a valid point because he said, look, people are coming to me and I'm representing this Abdul Enterprises. They're going to ask, well, where do you bank, right? Where's your paper trail? Because you're supposed to be a legit business. So I'll need to be able to tell them Abdul Enterprises has a huge uh, treasure trove of cash in Chase Manhattan Bank. Here's Here's what the account looks like, you know, and that's the credibility we need. He was absolutely correct in this regard. And this paved the way because as they were expanding, what they quickly realized concurrently is that the operation led them to an entire criminal network. Nepotism is big in crime, just like any other industry connections and networking are often more important than one's actual talents. And so these other members of the criminal, the various criminal enterprises or Venn diagrams would introduce other people into the mix. Like, you know, you have to go talk to my guy over here. He's the expert on this particular type of crime. And, you know, you know, who you're really looking for is this other guy in Pennsylvania or in New Jersey.
1: It was exactly. And they moved on from just dealing in stolen art to go into like fake bonds, right? Or, or um, stock fraud and all these other things like that, where you're, you can see them starting to move up in the criminal underworld, right? Which is weird to think about up or would you move down in the criminal un-
2: underworld? Well, I guess it's kind of like how there's not really a top or bottom to planet Earth, if you look at it from space. Okay. Okay. They're 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 going both into the heights and into the depths. (laughs) But they're up the ranks. All right, whatever. (laughs) I think the further up the ranks you go, the deeper into depravity you go. Oh, man. Uh, English is weird. English is, uh, you know, doing its best. So... So yeah, this is nuts. The the one of their next big steps, they run into a group of people doing like you said, white collar crime, fake bonds and stocks. And Weinberg is all about expanding the program. The undercover work just with the fake bonds and stocks leads to 600 million dollars worth of fraudulent securities being Captured or prevented, mitigated, whatever words you want to use, and if you look at their seed money of one million thirty-two thousand dollars, this is a pretty great return.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a little
2: bit, right? A little bit. It's pretty great, and so they expand. And at the same time, Abdul Enterprises is making a name for itself in your local criminal community of the Northeast. They're branching out investigations into DC, into Jersey, like we mentioned. Maybe it's time we talk a little bit about the actual operation. What, what, what do you think? How does Weinberg, how does he do the approach?
1: Well, let's say he put on several costumes, right? He tried a couple things out, didn't really like them so much. They didn't work as effectively as he wanted them to until he landed on Kambir Abdul Rahman. This guy is supposedly a sheik from the Arab Emirates. Uh, and this guy, oh boy. Uh, he 's a he 's a millionaire businessman he 's got all this money and he wants to launder it through whatever it is that you 're doing. He just yeah. needs to get money <laughs> moving
2: through <laughs> the u s right He needs that money clean he needs it invested in a stable economy yeah do do check out our our episode on real estate and foreign investments. <laughs> well, and
1: the idea that just to keep this in mind, we're talking about late 70s. So, picking someone from the Arab Emirates who happened to be, you know, royalty or at least close to royalty, um, it was a perfect idea. It really was a perfect idea because money was just being printed in that region of the world at that time because of oil prices and what was happening with oil.
2: Yeah, yeah. And important to note that Weinberg did not. Say he was the sheik. He was the representative, the He's agent, an agent. the right uh, hand man of the sheik, uh, which also further lends to credibility. Although that might seem counterintuitive, if the sheik is really powerful, you're not going to meet that guy at the beginning. You're going to have to earn that meeting. So, one of the scenarios was that the sheik wanted to loan out his money and generate interest. Very common in the Western world. But according to this, Grift, the sheikh was uh, very concerned about Islamic laws against usury, which is charging egregious interest rates. So he needed bogus or forged certificates of deposit to withdraw cash from Muslim banks to invest somewhere else. And then other people, it's really based on what Weinberg would think would work for that person, for their perspective and personality. So other folks would be told, hey, this sheikh. Uh, wants to just have a secure place to invest his millions and millions of dollars, or he wants to buy art, or you know, this guy's really fancy and really wealthy, but he's a dirty old dog and he wants to finance porn. Yeah, well, and that and he worked can't. for someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: well, yeah, and, and this, uh, you know, we can make porn it over here. It's just uh, can't really do it where he is, so we need you to do it, and he's got all the money for it. here, just take it. It's a lot of money. You can have it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And eventually, as they're expanding, they add a second fictional sheik, Yasser Habib. Also, again, totally made up. Uh this might sound nuts today but we have to remember people across the planet were all very well aware of oil money the oil the OPEC embargoes of 1973 and then 1979 caused the price of gas to explode and so it was common knowledge that a lot of people who were already kind of higher ups in different oil producing countries in the Middle East had suddenly become even more wealthy cartoonishly so they were flush with cash it was a real thing. And while this scam might sound weird today, we have to realize there were a lot of other real world examples of tremendous amounts of money coming out of this part of the world, right? Entire entire structures being purchased in London, which was still a very expensive place, New York, etc. And the Sheik himself, here's the problem. So we've made up this figure, just like, you know, if you're starting a good cult, At some point, these folks are going to want to meet them. Criminals are big on the face-to-face aspects, right? If they're they're dealing with other criminals they respect. So they've got to find someone who can pass off as a sheik. Preferably an FBI undercover operative. Problem is, not a lot of people at the FBI speak Arabic. Certainly not fluently enough to sound like a guy who grew up in the Arab Emirates, United Arab Emirates.
1: Or look like someone who grew up there. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 the FBI scrambled, basically, and you can see this part in American Hustle where they just kind of get someone that kind of, in a way, could look the part and just pretend like they're really quiet. They just don't talk much. <laughs> the sheik doesn't talk very much. Uh, because the I think the FBI had two or three, I think three people play uh, at least the primary sheik for quite a while.
2: Yes, yeah, three different people. And that worked because... The folks that the quote unquote sheikh was meeting were not talking with each other. And they were calling this Arab scam, AB scam, for quite some time. You asked earlier why the name change occurred. It's because the American Arab Relations Committee forced the FBI to stop being as racist. They said, don't, why are you guys calling it Arab scam? That's kind of messed up. There are a lot of Arab Americans here who are just living their lives, and we don't want to be associated as a demographic with this weird, weird thing. So the compromise they landed on is the FBI would pretend they always called it Abdul Scam, based on Abdul Enterprises.
1: There you go. Band-Aid working?
2: (laughs) I don't know. I think it's pretty nice to call it a (laughs) Band-Aid. Because... (laughs) Band-Aids, uh, whatever. Yeah. It's just, so uh, it, it just
1: stinks, but whatever. What yeah,
2: else? it does stink. And then while all this is playing out, the FBI finds themselves meeting criminals, I introduce them to more criminals, and then to even more criminals, and then to politicians. Mm, that's the cream of the crop right there. Yeah. Politicians, you heard that right. The folks who are supposed to be watching the Watchmen, turns out they also... Are more open to a good old fashioned grifting than uh, you might have. We might have assumed when we larceny, for them. larceny. Yeah, it's in my blood. It's in my blood. Yes. Uh, how do you think I got this job? Like my father before me, and his father before him. It's all about a grift.
1: All right. So how did these politicians get caught up in an ab scam? We'll tell you right after a word from our
4: sponsors
3: Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
1: And we're back. All right, Ben. What's going on? Elected oh. officials?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. So to get to the officials, we got to meet another guy named William Rosenberg. William Rosenberg, kind of a white collar crime dude. You know, he's a white collar crime enthusiast. Let's call him Weinberg knows about this guy and targets him. And he says, hey, Willie, you will get seven million dollars worth of commissions if you can help my principal, the sheik, make a one hundred million dollar investment because he wants to turn Atlantic City into the Vegas of the East. Whoa, really? east, East. Vegas yeah. of the East, $7
1: million. <laughs> I'm in, said William Rosenberg. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but just like any internet scam today, there's someone who wants to give you all this money. Oh, yeah. But there's a holdup. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. This poor Sheik, <laughs> he needs a guarantee that the hotel casino he's trying to build is definitely going to get a gambling license. Because oh. a casino without a gambling license, you know, it's like. A uh, hotel. It's just a hotel at that point. And so Rosenberg, say what you will about the man, is a very solution-oriented guy. And so he says, look, this is no problem. And I, I, I have an awesome grifter voice for this, but uh, we're not going to do it. Uh, he says, I know a local politician who's definitely on the team. This guy's also solution-oriented, and he can help smooth things over. He's actually the mayor of Camden, my good friend, Angelo Arricchetti. Oh, Eric Shetty. So you're, you're the FBI, right? <laughs> yeah, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to bust somebody for shady financial dealings because, again, you think they're a likely offender. You know that you know you strongly suspect they've done stuff like this in the past. You just can't prove it, and now all of a sudden you get Shyamalan. And they're like, yeah, I've got another guy to add to this heist. The mayor, (laughs) the
1: mayor, Um, the the guy that runs Atlantic City. (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. All right. Yeah, set that up. Let's do that. Um, And you can read about all of this in a book called The Sting Man that was written by Robert W. Green. Uh, This whole story like this book is nuts. It is um, really worth your time. If you if you if you like reading books,
2: check it out. And Eric Chetty, gets a very <laughs> gets some weird TLC in Green's book, uh, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the best books there is out about this case. Uh, he is said to have been a really foul mouthed, cursed like a sailor. He was a megalomaniacal person, extremely taken with himself. And he was a crook through and through. Uh, Our pal Weinberg actually came to really enjoy Erichetti because they knew where each other stood, essentially. He's like, look, we're both after the bag, right? He's like, yeah, we're after the bag and he's like I like (laughs) this guy
1: (laughs) I think he's I think uh, Aaron Shetty is the one who was quoted in that book as saying larceny is in my blood or something like that
2: yes yeah (laughs) you're right you're right he also said look I'll be your rabbi I'll give you Atlantic City without me you do nothing. Well, all right and, then. <laughs> right. So, so, he was like one of those people who's like, I could be your best friend or your worst enemy. And you're thinking, dang man, I'm just. We're both in line at this Chipotle. Calm down. <laughs> but uh, so, his price is four hundred thousand dollars. Errichetti wants four hundred grand off the top to get things going. And it turns out Ericetti was very much open for business of all types. And didn't have one specific kind of graft or crime that he he focused on. Uh, he well, let's see what do, he kept going to agents and saying, "Well, hey, what about this thing?" Just like uh, Weinberg, he was a man of ideas.
1: Well, yeah, basically, okay. So you got a casino, right? You're gonna run a casino. That's great. But what about money laundering? Have you thought about doing that? What about counterfeiting? You gonna counterfeit some money? Because we could do that. I mean that's pretty easy with a casino. What about the
2: ports? <laughs> and they say which which ports? He's like, the whole port of Camden. You could you guys ever want to run drugs through there? I mean, that <laughs> is <laughs> what? pretty smart, right? You want to get in on the ground floor.
1: <laughs> You're just like, okay, Mr. Mayor,
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. Don't you have to take care of the roads or your constituents or something? So Arichetti becomes the transformative entry point for yeah the real the real meat of app scam and why uh so many people in power are afraid of it today uh all of a sudden they realize this could be a political sting and he connects through through Arricheti Weinberg And the FBI start getting connected to a whole slew of U.S. politicians, elected representatives who are down to clown. Yeah. Oh,
1: my. Good golly. (laughs) Well, and and part of, I guess, part of this connection is why and leveling up, maybe I would say within the underworld and even the political world, it's causing the story to have to change the motive, the fictional motivations of Abdul Enterprises, right? It's starting to alter itself, and it's kind of been continually changing. So at this point, the fictional sheik has, you know, it's they're moving in, they're getting their gambling license, they're getting their casino. Well, now, now the, the sheik wants to become an American citizen. Are there any strings that can be pulled in the upper echelons of government that could allow for this?
2: Yeah, any politicians who could give us a hand in exchange for a whoosh, whoosh, consulting fee? which Mm -hmm. is what they're called, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's because you don't ever want to hear the word bribe, and people are very careful in those conversations to never use specific language. So we'd love you to consult with our good friend, the Sheik. Dude, they're gunning for Congress at this point. They're they're saying how, like, that's the way these operations work. You described it beautifully. They transform the um, desired... Or like the purported desire, so that it is appropriate to the position of the target, the position and abilities. If you go to, uh, say, a congressman, and you and you say something like, "Hey, I need uh, I need help getting some art," then they're going to rightly ask, "Why are you going to me?" You know, go. I have a friend at the museum. Go ask the people at the museum. Yeah, get out of here. Yes. I, I,
1: don't, I don't do anything with casinos. Sorry, it's not my mm-hmm. not my deal. Not in Camden. Sorry about that.
2: <laughs> so, so each Congressperson who got uh, approached was told the Sheik's outfit would pay them large sums of money as a consulting fee for what they called private immigration bills to let not just the Sheik but associates, foreign-based associates of Abdul Enterprises into the United States. They would also pay to get building permits and licenses of various sorts for operations in Atlantic City. Uh, Some of those licenses were for real places that Abdul Enterprises wasn't actually associated with. And some of them, at least one of them, was famously a place that was entirely made up, the Penthouse Boardwalk Hotel and Casino. That's a terrible name. The Dream of the Sheik. Yeah, it does <laughs> yeah. sound kind of like Mad Libs or Chat GPT'd. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. And But what, something interesting here is that the price of bribing a congressperson uh, went down yes. a little bit at some right. point, <laughs> which is weird to me. I thought they would have to increase the price, right, to get people to continue playing with them or get, to get higher level people playing with them. But they were originally paying $100,000 to have one of those consultations, right, for some of these private bills. Uh, But then they ended up reducing it down to $50,000, which is a bit weird. And you can even, right now, you can go on YouTube and find a video of one of those $50,000 exchanges, which is, it is very strange to watch.
2: Yeah, it looks staged. It Like, how could you even if you have no background in surreptitious things wouldn't you think it's weird that these people you don't know really well are giving you a suitcase of money
1: yeah how are they not
2: triple wire
1: ben in the one i saw there's there's an agent sitting at a desk with a hidden camera and he's like hey I'm the agent it's this date 1980 and this <laughs> is what's happening <laughs> and i've got fi- <laughs> he's like i've got $50,000 in these five stacks of bills i'm going to put them in this desk when they come in we're going to talk about exchanging the money here we go <laughs> and then they have the whole thing and then he he literally just pulls out $50,000 uh in in like you know it's $50,000 y'all in hundreds is not that big a stack of money? No, which is humbling. mind blowing. Yeah,
2: it's humbling to see it.
1: <laughs> it really is. Like, oh uh, God!
2: Especially if you're you're the kind of uh, folks and entities like us who don't regularly handle fifty thousand dollars in cash. That's why you get it in twenties
1: because that'll really make you feel good about it yourself. Flex out
2: <laughs> of a little, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I we we've got to say, yeah, this does look cartoonish. And the implications are are damning. I have two theories about the $100,000 to $50,000 thing. The first is that, well, the FBI has a budget and maybe, as their critics say, an axe to grind. So maybe this is some styling on it. Maybe this is like, well, how cheap is your integrity, you know, uh, Mr. Congressperson, or whatever. Uh, and the second idea Which I I don't know. This is all speculation on my part. But the the second theory I have is that what if a hundred grand a pop was such a good deal that it stood out too much? Hmm. What if, you know, other members of Congress started talking to each other and someone said, I don't know, Mullaney style, there's someone new in town and they keep giving out a hundred grand a pop this is not the usual kind of consulting fee I would take. So maybe they're trying to blend in just a little bit longer to keep the camouflage up. Mm. I don't know. What do you think about that one? I don't know. I think you might be right. I think you absolutely might be right, Ben. You don't think they just blew through that $1 No. No. You got to be careful. Maybe they were, maybe it was a race to the bottom. I wonder if like the last guy they tried to bust, it was, you know, a Sears gift card a microwave microwave. which is a
1: a real thing a real uh, part (laughs) of the investigation it's it's real microwaves that had their serial numbers removed as well as a couple of uh what speakers and
2: uh, like stereo receiver sets (laughs) yeah and they also tried to uh get um oh, who was it from Penthouse that they targeted in this? Yeah, the editor of Penthouse, unrelated to the politics, uh, they tried to bribe and turn the publisher of Penthouse, and he absolutely said no. Yeah. As a matter of fact, his specific quote was, are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then later, later he sues the federal government for trying to bribe him. Uh, That's right. But uh, so... The FBI is taking these meticulous notes. And Matt, I think we know they recorded each exchange. Mm-hmm. But I, I believe it's the first time in U.S. history that that kind of videotaping you're talking about of government officials physically taking bribes actually occurs.
1: I, I think so. And, and it is nuts. The one I saw was with John Murtha. And he's offered $50,000. And after he's offered, offered this money, he goes on like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to do business yet like that. Uh, let's do business for a while. Then, you know, we'll see if we get to that level. Basically, we i all take cash money from you in that way. Uh, let's make sure this is all in the up and up. But then he talks about, well, you know, I'm on the ethics committee. So I've seen this kind of thing happen before where it goes really bad. Just like, wait, are you or are you not going to be taking money from these guys? Because you're definitely doing
2: dirty work for them. It's very, very weird to watch. Some double think at play, you know, in some of these situations. And this documentation shows multiple Sting Ops, you know, recorded before a live studio audience, right? Uh, there's, there's some that occur in a house in a pretty nice neighborhood in D.C. Uh, some that occur a yacht off the coast of Florida. And a lot that occur in these kind of innocuous hotel rooms in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. In the end, seven Very high-level U.S. politicians get jammed up. Six congressmen, and believe it or not, folks, one actual U.S. senator. And senators, not to sound too cynical, are are usually pretty good at parkouring out of that kind of conviction. Yeah, you can
1: have somebody do it for you right on your behalf and then Uh, oh well it was my aid and uh, ooh ooh that bad aid no why'd you do that
2: (laughs) on the inside we just call it trading right (laughs) yeah exactly so uh i guess we should we should read the list of the people who got convicted before we go into the nitty-gritty here oh sure uh we'll start with let's start from the bottom
1: richard kelly of florida
2: yes then john murphy of new york uh all, all of these folks, except for the senator, are congressional representatives.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Thompson of New, of New Jersey gets a bit of an honorable mention here because Frank refused the offer the first time, but then when Weinberg came back around, he accepted.
2: That's why they call him Frankie two times in the joint. <laughs> uh, no, they don't. <laughs> uh, they probably just call him Thompson. But yeah, I, I don't know about that one. I don't know whether that was. Maybe just like part of a negotiation tactic or I I don't know. We don't know the details there, but it's probably the,
1: the same deal with Joe Martha where they're smart, right? These uh, everybody on this list has navigated politics, which is not an easy thing to do, right? So I imagine that I don't know that kind of thinking occurs all the time. Just being cautious when you're being offered money.
2: Come to me correctly in a way that I can legally agree with, right, or have the appearance of such. Anyway, next we've got uh, Representative Michael Myers of Pennsylvania. Aussie to his friends, not that oh. Michael Myers. Oh, okay, or not that, that, Michael, that Michael Myers. Myers yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Michael Myers the third. Uh, we also got Raymond Letterer of
2: Pennsylvania. Uh, we've got John Ginret of South Carolina,
1: and the big one. You called it out, Senator who? Harrison Williams of New Jersey. Pete to his friends. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, and that's not all, right? This it, There's a much larger list. There are other mayors, I think, and other people that got caught up.
2: Yeah, five other government officials, mayors, uh, members of city councils. They got indicted and convicted. And um, our boy, the mayor of Camden, was the first one. To get convicted, <laughs> which maybe he knew was a short-term grift because he really did. He was a go-getter, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like he it was like the Wikipedia of crime. If you're interested in this, you might also enjoy, <laughs> or maybe like a Netflix <laughs> recommendation of crime. Yeah. So this also bears pointing out, with the exception of the first person we named, Richard Kelly of Florida, all of these politicians were members of the Democratic Party, at least in what? name at least in name, you could make a, a pretty solid argument that they were actually the Green Party. Just a bad oh. joke about dollars, uh, leave it. I mean, that's the argument the courts made, and each defendant had a separate trial because they each had a different kind of deal with the sheik, some mining interests, some real estate stuff, etc. Eventually, the American people win the day. Uh, by 1981, all of these folks we named were convicted of bribery and conspiracy. Kelly did try to use the entrapment argument for his case. It didn't work. And there were some people who escaped indictment. Uh, Mirtha being one of them.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, because they never took the money. In that video with Murtha I'm talking about, he refuses the $50,000. It is on video, and you can watch it right now, and it feels weird that he's even in the meeting, but he at least doesn't take the money.
2: Yeah, he doesn't take the money. Uh, And the other person who doesn't take the money is South Dakota Senator Larry Pressler. The news rocks the United States, and there would be consequences, but maybe not the consequences we would have hoped for. Abscam wins 19 convictions. And as the memes say, Congress took that personally. They made a spectacle of it not talking about the need for greater accountability in Congress, but denying and delaying FBI appointments as a way of getting back to them, opening hearings on whether or not the FBI should have even been doing this. Uh, they also were able to touch parts of the media to attack the credibility of Abscam as an operation. The and American, the FBI itself. And the FBI itself. and uh, Yeah. And the American public, you know, the court of public opinion is in session and then you know, just picture all these people across the United States watching the news or listening to the radio, and they learn, oh, this Weinberg guy, this absolute con man, is at the is at the helm of this? He's in charge? That's <laughs> yeah. a lot. That's a tall milkshake.
1: Well, and you can imagine, you know, the heads of giant multinational media corporations could never take part in any kind of weird shenanigans like this, right? No, 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 no. They <laughs> wouldn't do that. Uh, but this is where entrapment becomes a huge deal as a a talking point, as a point of discussion. Right? What is entrapment? Is
2: this entrapment? It sure feels like entrapment. Yeah, Congress is very focused on that. Like, guys, what you know? What we don't talk about enough? Just money aside, uh, and I don't even really know what that has to do with the conversation. Money aside, what? Let's talk about entrapment. That's the real problem here. So they do the matrix dodge and pivot for this Weinberg does pretty well. He gets out of a 3-year prison sentence and he's paid $150,000 for his time. Wow. Which is pretty decent, right? 50 grand a year. Yeah, except in it. the late 70s. Yeah. And uh, and I hope they gave it to him in a three stacks of $100 bills. <laughs> <laughs> but behind the scenes, you know, as as we have been talking about earlier when we discovered this story, things got even uglier. Congress was out for vengeance. It was not their primary concern that elected representatives of the most powerful nation on the planet might be easily swayed by as little as 50 grand. It was their concern that the FBI was getting above its station and going out of pocket. They forced the U.S. Attorney General to issue new guidelines that hamstrung undercover operations against politicians. They just seemed less concerned and the concerns about entrapment are valid. Sure. But they seemed less concerned with protecting the American public and more concerned with protecting their colleagues and possibly cutting off any future investigations into some of their own dealings. Congress threw a tantrum.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they're basically basically saying, hey, FBI, we got to run. For office over here, we got to run cities and states and the federal government. We got to make all those things happen. And some of those things require a little handshake deal. Okay, you can't be looking at us. You can't go undercover and try and catch us doing what we do best. Shaking hands, making money. (laughs) I mean, really, how do you think the wheels on this country run? It's through greasing them. You got to grease them wheels.
2: Who do you think you are? <laughs> That's it. That's it. Who do you think you are? You listen here. If I catch you inside Rhode Island after dark, <laughs> yeah. we're going to have a very different conversation, my friend. <laughs> you do you like I mean? your
1: operating budget, <laughs>
2: FBI? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But their mission of vengeance backfired a little bit because it made AppScam a bigger story than it might have been otherwise. And that gets us to... I think the most disturbing part of this, folks, I mean, Matt, Paul, conspiracy realists playing along at home. Why haven't there been more investigations like this? This is the only one of its kind. Yeah,
1: because Congress set forth a ton of rules of what you can and can't do during an undercover investigation from that point forward. You're not going to you fool me once, basically, is what they said. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: Can't be fooled again. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Something like that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, yeah, the rules, these are called general guidelines. They kind of get a uniform approach to undercover operations, which again is a valid thing, but they formalize procedures that you have to jump through to conduct an undercover op to avoid future controversy. And those rules, however you feel about them, have made something on the scale of app scam pretty much impossible. Today. And if you look at it, officials in modern day America have far fewer abilities to hold the powerful accountable. And you can make a solid argument, or a pretty compelling argument, at least, that this is by design. Like there's a reason this is a thing. And even now, you know, it's nuts. Uh, People are divided on the FBI. Did the FBI just was it operating in its own kind of gangster way? Was it trying to pay Congress back for investigating COINTELPRO, police brutality? There aren't really what we would understand as good guys at the top of of a lot of these situations, you know. And that's not to denigrate members of Congress. Remember, there are a lot of congressional representatives. There, there are lots of senators. Uh, they're not all some monolithic entity out to grift people. And the FBI is not full of a bunch of weird Hooverites or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but the FBI kept piling on those guidelines, right? They kept putting more rules in, uh, and the, the last ones were instituted in 2001. I don't know, man. It just seems like the FBI made a grand conspiracy to convict crooks in office of conspiracy. And then Congress started a conspiracy of their own. And they sort of taught the American public knowingly or unknowingly that uh, they should be watching like that Congress as the watchman should watch itself. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Uh Self-regulation, know. baby. That's the name of the game here in America. I think, uh, by the way, those guidelines, you can look them up. The Smith Guidelines, the Thornborough Guidelines, and the Reno Guidelines. They all started uh, in 1983, and as you said, Ben ran to 2001. Uh, f- dude, I, I here's, here's what I'm going to put forward. You ready? Abscam was an inside job by Congress. To get the FBI, they entrapped the FBI to investigate Congress so they could put forth the guidelines so that they could never be investigated again. Boom. I think we've
2: solved it. <laughs> I th- think that's it. Uh, and this is one of the many reasons that we, you and I will probably never run for Congress.
1: No. And yeah. we can never be in the Secret Service.
2: I well, might that's for other mo- reasons. I might mosey into public <laughs> office, but I'm certainly not going to run. It doesn't feel worth the effort. I can see you, Mosian. They could saunter in. Well, <laughs> I reluctantly accept the nomination for comp troller. <laughs> uh, let's, keep, let's keep writing ourselves in as comp and just hope we never have to actually deliver on that weird inside joke. Crunch um, some numbers one day. Cop some trolls, man. Wait, what does Comptroller do again? It's an accountant. It's way less fun than like the idea that one trolls are real and two there's a government job to just compensate them. <laughs> the computer troller. <gasps> okay. Okay. Well, with that, folks, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. Are do you believe that Congress purposely hamstrung the FBI after Abscam? Do you think that? What What do you think an investigation like this would find in the modern day? You know, I think that's one of the biggest questions. And are you surprised that it only took 50 grand for some of the nation's most powerful people to become criminals? Let us know, Facebook, Internet, YouTube, TikTok, until their strict act goes through all the hits, all the good ones. If you don't sip the social medes, never ye fear. Uh, you can call us directly on a telephonic device.
1: Yes, dial 1833 STDWYTK. When you call in, it's a voicemail system. You've got 3 minutes. Give yourself a cool name. Doesn't matter what it is as long as it's not your real name. No government names on our voicemail, please. <laughs> Standard policy. <laughs> um, um, also, let us know if you give us permission to use your voice and message on the air in one of our listener mail segments. If you've got more to say than can fit in three minutes, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are
2: Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
4: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.